Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Healthy ego is recognizing, yes, I have achieved things, but you're not totally attached to that being your identity. We're operating in a world now where people are acting rationally and irrationally, predictably and unpredictably. So it's impossible that um, one person can have all the answers. You know, often we're looking almost for the quick fix, you know, the instant result. Welcome to the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Stephen D'Souza. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Hashem. I'm delighted to join you and to speak with your uh, listeners today. Thanks so much, Stephen, for taking the time. Stephen is an educator, consultant, and the author of four best-selling books. But his new book, Not Being, The Art of Self-Transformation, will soon be published. Previously, he ran his own company, Deeper Learning Limited, a global executive education and consultancy. He was also an associate professor of IE Business School, an associate fellow of Said Business School at the University of Oxford, and a leadership consulting and coaching for INSEAD. His clients have ranged from individuals and small charities to some of the world's top business schools and global companies, including Accenture, Barclays, BT, and Goldman Sachs. He has also been recognized by Thinkers50.com on their radar and Think of the Month for August 2015, which is dedicated to the leading management thinkers globally and was placed on their radar list dedicated to the new generation of thinkers, most likely to challenge management practice. HR Magazine named him one of the top 30 most influential thinkers in HR globally. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Harsha. And uh, sounds like a full introduction. I didn't even recognize some of those things. It's like uh, I was thinking of David Brooks. He wrote uh, a book around character. And uh, he always tells, how do we tell the, our life stories? Do we tell it like a resume? Or do we tell it in terms of purpose, in terms of fulfillment, in terms of our dreams and our hopes, things that were, went wrong as well, things that went right? And I think that was very much a, a resume bio. <laughs> so I'm curious if, if I was to retell my bio in terms of, you know, the, and hopefully we'll cover that in the conversation more, the ebbs and the eddies and the ups and the flows and the downs. Uh, it would look very different. But yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> the level resume bio might be helpful to, to listeners and hopefully we can go beneath the surface in, in our conversation. But the good thing, Stephen, it shows that you're a man of credibility rather than just some punt off the street. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a hard one. You know, where do you get credibility and what is the source of your credibility? And uh, yes, we tend to look in our society at labels, titles, 
and they convey confidence, uh, rightly so, because it takes effort uh, to acquire them. But they can also be uh, illusions in the sense that they can be distractions from real learning. So who, you know, it's easy to acquire. I think Rumi talks about two kinds of intelligence in one of his poems. He talks about one kind of intelligence that's like a fountainhead from within and the other more like plumbing and learning where you attach, uh, attach things and it's not really coming from within. So, you know, whether it's memorized learning to pass exams or uh, acquired credentials, but I really believe that it takes both kinds of learning, you know, both those two kinds of intelligence, not just the external. And uh, we can deprive ourselves if we're just focused on on one. So we all have friends who we would say are scholars or through thinkers or extremely smart, but they would lack perhaps the second kind of intelligence with the qualifications, etc. So how do we get that balance in our lives to to question what is true learning for me and what does it mean you know so these are the kind of uh, when I think about my biotics <laughs> like what did I do to pass an exam and did I remember that information and so less about the veneer and more around the substance and how how do we uh, look for that too in in who we relate to and how we relate to them. I, I think a lot of people who are listening to your personal development podcast or career podcast um, I feel sometimes lack a bit of self-confidence but they have amazing achievements. And I totally take the point that you're making, but sometimes in a way you need to almost look back at your backstory. And I remember the first podcast I I ever went on, um, I was thinking like, what do I have to say? And I tried to put my story together. And Mm. when you go through it, you think, oh, well, I have actually done a few interests. I'm not saying it's the most amazing journey, but Mm. I I think whenever you're thinking about your own life, uh, unless you're a narcissist, it's not that interesting, isn't it? And and you think all the steps are fairly logical. And, and in a way, it's almost like talent or skill that you're born with. Um, some people find it easier to do things than, than other people. Um, and I, I totally take your point about, yeah, you should, you should look at these things um, differently. But on the other hand, I think sometimes we should also look at our achievements and uh, take pride in them. Because I think sometimes we're quite happy to almost do ourselves down a bit too much. Whereas yeah. Um, yeah, in, in the world, there are all these self-promoters who self-promoting not very much. And I would have thought somebody like yourself, who's actually written five books, uh, I'm trying to write my first and I can see how painful it is. So I would be going around saying, oh my God, I, I've written five books <laughs> on my business card. No, I don't even have a business card. <laughs> oh, Stephen, why not? <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite funny, and particularly if I wrote a book on networking. <laughs> and, um, but uh, coming back to your point around valuing our story, you know, the first uh, one of my first areas in my career, I was working in a hotel as a HR manager. I went away to Spain, Madrid, with uh, another HR director, actually, my boss, and she was asking me, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, I want to write a book. I want to speak to people, want to be, you know, have that kind of career as a speaker. And she said to me, an interesting question, why would anyone want to listen to you? And uh, I thought that's a really good question. And I pondered that question. And the answer I came with is, I can't talk about anything with authority and coming back to our sense of credibility, unless it's linked to my life story and my lived experience. So I decided to write a book. And at that time, I wrote a book about inspiring role models from minority communities in Britain. I told their stories, you know, not just their 
parts that were successful, but also the things they struggled with. We saw a variety of people from rocket scientists to the Nobel Peace Prize building designer, David Ajay, Sir David Ajay, to Lord Morris, who was doing an inquiry, to parents whose child had leukemia and managed to set up a, a national charity to support uh, donors. But the interesting thing is, when I published the book, I realised something, and I only realised it in hindsight, that my story was missing. So I felt comfortable in telling the stories and achievements of others, but I left out my own story. And my, my reflection on this was came a long time after when I, I read a book called The Pursuit of Significance. And <clears throat> the Carlos Stringer, he talks about how we tend to denigrate the ordinary and we tend to put value on the, you know, the celebrity or what he calls the commodification of celebrity. And, you know, we look at how many, how many people have, have liked posts or the rankings in particular HR magazine or this or whatever it happens to be, the, the 40 under 40. And we don't tend to see the value in, in what we take for granted. And in careers, we think about nurses, doctors, or they're kind of uh, teachers the kind of professions now with COVID and the pandemic have, have taught us that they're far from you know, seen as some they're, they're vital and they're key um, to, to society. But we don't tend to see our own, as you said, our own story and our own achievements. That led me to reflect in particular on, on my latest thinking on ego. You know, we tend to, you mentioned narcissism, and we tend to always think uh, narcissism is, is ego, but actually there's deflated ego as well. It's when we downplay our achievements and we dismiss uh, the good that we have, and, we, and that's e- equally a form of ego. So I think there's something about inflated ego, deflated ego, and healthy ego. And healthy ego is recognising, yes, I have achieved things, but you're not totally attached to that being your identity. You can see the value, but you don't conflate your worth with your title, with your with what you've done in, in the past. They affect you, but they don't define you. And I think that's something, you know, try to wrestle with because we live in a society that does privilege, you know, qualifications, does privilege the list, does privilege. So how do we recognize that's a game almost of society? But with that we don't get <laughs> sucked into the game thinking that's the reality and that's our that's what we must do in our lives. And uh, it can be a trap for, for many and it can be a prison if we if we do get attached to that um, pursuit. And Stephen, I think that those are some great points that you're making. Um, but one, one thing I like to um, have my listeners, uh, have my uh, guests share is a quote. Yeah, I thought about this and, you know, one quote immediately came to mind and it's in the book, Not Knowing. And uh, it's at the end of the book and it's a quote by the Spanish Chilean poet, Antonio Machado. It sounds better in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, but <laughs> the English translation is something along the lines of traveller. Or pilgrim, there is no path. The path is made by walking. And that's one of my favorite quotes because essentially says the future isn't like a fixed destination that's known and uh, that we need to arrive at. But we're crafting the, our future or the path, we're making the path with each step we take. And so it takes away the pressure to know the destination, but it also gives m- much more emphasis on each daily activity or each step that we can take. And uh, I often say that we don't walk that path alone. You know, like any Camino, if, if uh, viewers or listeners have been on the Camino de Santiago, it was an ancient pilgrimage. There's many routes, but the most popular one is from France to uh, Santiago in Spain. You realize that there's, you know, hundreds of uh, 
other pilgrims or travelers. And you cannot walk the, the path alone. You always come in conjunction with people. You separate, you walk on alone, but you can reconnect. And there's something about um, a shared journey rather than an individual journey. And the second uh, quote, if I may, only came to me yes, this sure. morning. And it's related to what we were speaking about. And it's by St. Augustine. He says, Lord, I'm nothing, but I'm yours. And that's paradoxical because at one sense, you know, there's a humility of recognizing that, that there's some sense of nothingness, but at the same sense, a sense of being held, belonging and value. And it's how do you hold that tension? I'm nothing, that humility, yep. but I'm yours, that love or that uh, grandeur. So there's a difference I was taught between grandeur and grandiosity, you know, and how do we hold our grandeur and uh, our specialness, our uniqueness, our gifts, our talents, and hold our humility. And so I, I love that quote. And it always uh, allows me to surrender, to think I don't need to do the thing, but I can recognize I'm nothing, but I'm yours. So it can be done, but it doesn't need to be all through my efforting and through my own uh, belief in my own special skills type of thing. No, uh, th- thanks, Stephen. I-, I love those quotes, especially the, the first one, because it reminds me of um, The Alchemist, um, you know, Pablo Coelho, and this whole idea of following this path, you're not really sure where it's going, you know, in life or in careers. Sometimes you, you, know, you can have a final destination, which you think you want to get to. But actually, mm. if you're too fixated on there's only one uh, way t- to that place or one you know, place that you're at one destination, mm then actually you'll, you'll miss out on these amazing opportunities which are in front of you. And I, mm. and I think especially these days, um, yeah, there's a bit of a Wild West situation going on. There's so much volatility. So in mm. a way, you have to be adaptable. And uh, yeah, I quite like um, yeah, what our good friend um, Christian Bush says mm. yeah, about this whole idea of creating luck. And I believe that mm. opportunities and luck are, are always there to some extent. But you have mm. to keep your eyes um, open in order to to find those things. Um, don't you think so? Yeah, I think uh, like most narratives in life, we tend to tell the story in hindsight. We say that was lucky or that was unlucky. And we, we actually, there was like a consequence and, it, and most of the time it's predictable. I think I heard the phrase, you know, success is 100% predictable if you follow the, the routines and you do the processes, etc., but we, we don't tend to think like that. So we don't see the whole, uh, the narrative. But yes, I, th- I, I do think we can do things. I'm less convinced that we're always in control. You know, there's a phrase in management, you can be in charge, but you're never in control. There's too many variables happening in the world. Well, Just give an example from the book of not knowing, you know, we talked about the thinking fast, thinking slow um, work by Daniel Kahneman. And he says, if he talks over over a hundred unconscious biases, you know, from primacy bias, recency, confirmation bias, etc. But he says, if you think you have reasons for your beliefs, you're probably mistaken. And example from chess, you know, in the, in the world, a couple of years ago, there was 1,141 chess grandmasters. Uh, to be grandmasters, generally, you have a very high cognitive abilities and abilities to con- to think rationally, to control. And they can think roughly around 15 moves ahead. That's a lot of uh, moves ahead to to hold in your in your mind. But they play in a game with fixed and predictable rules. Whereas we're operating in a world now where people are acting rationally and irrationally, predictably and unpredictably. So it's impossible that um, one person can have all the answers or know. So ra- rather than uh, thinking that 
yes, we have no control. Yes, what's in our locus control? I think Epictetus, their Stoic, said, you know, distinguishing the two circles. One is in your circle of concern or control and one isn't. Uh, we can take that autonomy, that responsibility, I think, at the same time to recognise that much of it won't be in our control, but it's not about controlling. It's how do we move from control to trust? How do we move from being able to control something to being able to respond? And that's a, it's a very different attitude towards our careers and to our lives. Less about control and predictability and more around trust and uh, working with what, what is happening, uh, working life with what's happening. It's funny you say that, Stephen, because um, I'm very interested in this whole idea of control and thinking what, what you are able to control and, and, and what you can't. There is actually much more that we can control in terms of where we live, how we study, how we work to, to a certain extent, who we associate with. But obviously there are things like the pandemic or you know, do we get on with our boss to, to some extent or you know, is the industry we're working on, if you're in the travel industry or something which has been decimated, there are macro issues which you can't control. But I think even those things which you can't control, I think the important thing is how you react to that. And for some people, um, you know, maybe being laid off, they'll think this is a disaster. I only have one set of skills and they're not really transferable. Whereas other people will think, okay, I've, I've got this set of skills. It was working in, it, in this industry. But, you know, if I go and do a master's or do some course on the side, I can retrain. So I think it's about reframing um, the way you look at the situation and, you know, rather than a glass, you know, half empty, look at it as half full. So I totally agree with what you're saying about control and going forward. I think adaptability, the, uh, the ability to deal with uncertainty and volatility, you're just going to have to be comfortable with almost discomfort. Uh, don't you think so? Yeah, I think uh, increasingly so. Ash. I think uh, when people, I think there's this illusion of control. You know, we have an illusion of control. And even neuroscience has shown, you know, that even before you pick up the glass, you think you're yeah. doing, your brain has already made that movement. So we tell ourselves the, the narrative of the doer. Yeah. So I think part of our is of biological mechanisms and part of it is things that affect our personality, whether it's our environment, our parenting, our genes, things that we have no idea about and uh, largely in our unconscious uh, as drivers. If we live like that, we'll be living in a deterministic and also in maybe in a very nihilistic uh, perspective that we don't have any and it, it's not necessarily a healthy attitude. But the, the opposite is to, to go to the other extent. I can control everything. I'm the master of my ship, the captain of my destiny. And that equally can be hubris. So I try to see what is the middle way where, as you said, we can become comfortable uh, in, in knowing what our limits are, what our strengths are, and keeping a sense of openness and curiosity. I think uh, Adam Grant wrote a, an excellent book called Think Again. Meaning, you know, you we question our thinking. We 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 recognise that we are learners and we don't have all the answers. And the book Not Knowing was this idea about, you know, I'd written a book on networking and it was it was okay, but um, people found it useful. But I wanted to write a book that combined philosophy, spirituality, psychology, leadership, and management. And I didn't know how would I do that? And I was walking down the tube station in London. It was Seven Sisters Tube. And I think, how do I do that? And I think, and I don't know. And I thought, not knowing isn't the same as uncertainty. At the time I was seeing my therapist, I was training as a therapist. 
And he said, Stephen, you always seem to make polarities. You always make, should I do this or should I do this? And then, you know, you get tied up in, in, in this or that. What I realized is that uncertainty isn't the only response. It's only one feeling in response to the unknown, but it's not the only response. So think of children at Christmas or Eid or uh, another festival, Saki. When something, when something is wrapped in a, in a present or an envelope, or, do they feel uncertain? No. They feel curious. They feel excited. They feel full of wonder, possibility. And so started to research uh, alongside my co-author, Diana Arena, people who approach the unknown, not as a place of uncertainty, but as a space of opportunity. What we discovered was it wasn't about adding more tools to your toolkit. Rather, it was about unlearning. We used a phrase from the poet Keats, who wrote a letter to his brothers, George and Thomas. And in it, he describes this thing called negative capability. And he defines it as the ability to be with mystery, uncertainty and doubt without irritable reaching after fact and reason. So this isn't saying that we dismiss the facts. They're, they're, equal, they're very important and critical, but it's developing our capability to be with mystery, uncertainty, doubt at the same time. And from this, we developed almost like uh, four principles. I'll talk about one maybe, and that will help maybe illustrate it. So the first one is this idea of empty your cup. So, um, Stephen, just one thing. So th- this is this concept of the edge that I think you you brought up in your book. Is that right in not knowing? Uh, yeah, yeah, the or, edge yeah. comes before, really. Oh, right. The edge is when uh, any time that we feel groundless, any time that we feel at the edge of our knowledge, every time that we feel confusion, uh, uncertainty, and it can be a painful feeling. So we use the metaphor of the edge. Again, from the Camino, this idea of this pilgrimage, uh, if you walked 90 kilometers more from Santiago, you'd reach a coastal town called Finisterre. And Finisterre is in the Latin, literally the end of the earth. And on the ancient medieval maps, they would draw dragons and uh, lions because it was terrifying. You know, sailors didn't return. They thought they would fall off the, fall off the edge of the world. And often when we're at the edge and we don't know what to do in our careers, or in our lives, or in our choices, we we reach that edge. And it's a somatic thing. It's not just a a, a cognitive thing. We might feel palpitations, our breathing might get shallow. We might feel, you know, disturbed, clammy hands. But what we discovered is, you know, we reach many edges in our lives, multiple edges, but we tend to have uh, distinct responses when we're at the edge. So to give you an example, Harsha, one of the typical responses is control. You know, we tend to, if you work in a company as well, you see more controls being put into place, more processes, and they, that takes away some of the anxiety at the edge. I always give the example as well, when I was buying a house in London, I had to, the vendor for the house I was buying needed to uh, move by a particular date so I could complete. And uh, she was delaying and delaying. And so I said to the state agents, if she's not able to complete by this date, um, I'm going to withdraw from the purchase. And the estate agent, you know, I've not received sage advice from an estate agent, but said, Stephen, can you remain a little longer in the uncertainty, in the unknown? So I did, and I completed. But what that taught me was, by withdrawing, was my way of taking back control, you know, yeah. asserting back some sense of control over the situation. So control is a common one, and there's many forms of control. Second one is like a paralysis by analysis. You know, we get the spreadsheets, we draw the drawings, we 
hire the consultants to come in. But by the time we've done the analysis, the situation has changed. Another one can be like passivity or resignation. I can't do anything because nothing will change. You know, the situation won't get better. So it's holding that passivity. Another is catastrophic thinking. You know, I can't take that job or I can't leave my job because I'll never work again. I'll have no clients, but our mind automatically goes to the worst. Or there's a, let's say, the 30 second rush to action. I can't tolerate this edge. So I'm going to do something, anything quickly to almost take away the anxiety of remaining a bit longer. So we call that the quick fix. And often it doesn't really solve the underlying problem and could make things worse. Now, all of these aren't negative, Harsha. They're quite common and they have positive as well as uh, positive effects as well. So if I'm catastrophic in my thinking, now generally I'm prepared for the worst. So, you know, I might have my uh, funds, I might uh, have a backup plan, I might... But, you know, there's a book, I think, called Only the Paranoid Survive. But the cost is that that, that worst case scenario may never happen. But what has happened is that our bodies have been through the pressure and the stress of living through that. I think it's in Mark Twain's most of our problems, you know, Strafford have never actually happened. They're mostly imaginary. Our bodies have really um, gone there. And the consequences that we, we've lived that out in our, in our imagination, if not in our lives, but all of them have positives. So the analysis is super useful. But if we get stuck there, can detract and delay and also obfuscate the real issue. So it's about recognizing when we're at the edge and facing the unknown, where do we tend to go by default? And how can we look at other potential ways to respond and at least acknowledge what the strengths here and what are the, the costs of continuing in my catastrophic thinking or continuing in my rush to action or whatever the, the sense has. So that's what we mean by the edge and recognizing that, you know, we come to the edges many times, but how do we bring awareness to that and more curiosity to our approach when we're at the edge? rather than just going unconsciously default into the um, to the unknown. I, th- I think that's a, a great point you make, Stephen, and especially this thing about understanding what your default response is. Um, it could yeah. be that, say, you're a perfectionist, you spend too much time, and then in a way you have to be less, you know, less finickety, mm-hmm. whereas if you're on the other scale, you actually have to think more about what you're doing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a sort of, there's no one size fits all um, mm-hmm. advice you can give. And in a way, mm. with this podcast um, and the guests that I have, I don't think any of us have all the answers, but what we have is a, a toolkit of things. And mm. in a way, the listeners, it's about trying to empower them and say, look, you need to figure out what is your uh, way of thinking and then almost adapt to that. So if you're quick to action, maybe then, as you're saying, take a bit of time to think about it. Whereas if you think too much, maybe you need to say, okay, I give myself a time limit. I'll think up to then, but then you know the marginal benefit of carrying on is not going to achieve that much. And and I totally agree the catastrophization of of things. I suppose it's something that as humans, if you think about the worst case possibility, then mm. we're always trying to avoid that. You know, potentially that's kept us alive. But now mm. it's you know you don't have those a lot of real dangers unless you're in a, a war zone or something. You have to. Uh, adapt the way you think. Um, don't you think so? Yes, I, I do. And you're right. Uh, we're naturally predisposed to think cautiously and negatively. And when we can recognise that, it should uh, take off some of, the, some of the, the barriers, you know, to thinking that we need to see things always positively. 
I'm I'm not one for the positive psychology movement where it's almost this Im- imperative to be happy. I'm not a, a nihilist, but there's a funny new book called The Sunny Nihilist and recognizing that taking away the pressure to always be positive or happy allows us to be a bit more realistic, less emotional labor, and can also allow us to show more compassion to ourselves rather than thinking we always need to be, you know, on top and awesome and everything is great, but acknowledging the shades of gray as much as the light and the dark. Totally. In terms of your own career, I saw that you studied at the University of Surrey, and I, I know it's going back a little bit, but did you have any particular strategy for your career when you left university, or was it just a, a series of experiments? I'd go back even further, Harshan. It's not in the bio, but when I was uh, 18, I thought I had a vocation for priesthood. When my friends were going to university, I did a voluntary year. And then so I was living with other young people and I worked as a youth retreat leader and in an Alzheimer's disease uh, centre and lived in community, learning about reflecting on, you know, relationships, reflecting on myself, reflecting on attitudes to divine or transpersonal. And in the second year, I continued that. So it was almost like thinking, and I I lived in the east end of Glasgow, I worked in a deaf centre, mental hospital, prison. I'd say that age was really formative and it helped me um, accelerate growth that I wouldn't have necessarily happened, you know, unless I had that um, formation really. But it became clear to me it wasn't my vocation to be a priest, it was to live a lay life and it wasn't, you know, I had a more broader, more existential kind of philosophy. It showed me that my approach to work isn't necessarily thinking about jobs or isn't thinking about career, but is thinking about vocation, meaning what's being called forth from me, how might I express my deepest longing, and that might be in terms of fulfillment, might be in terms of service and contribution. So I thought that would be my way initially. And what it wasn't, university was a default. I studied philosophy, theology, history. During that time, I was curious about you know personal development and growth. I'd done an NLP practitioner, masters, and while while an undergraduate on the training course, the owner of the company now called NLP Academy said, "Would I work for him when I graduate?" So I almost went default into just a small startup. It was literally me and him. And uh, when others were joining, you know, Bearings and Citibank and others, the thing was, I felt I was following my own crafting, my own path. And that changed, you know, from doing that to realizing I wanted to work for myself, starting my own company. It was just short lived, but it was called Students First, where I wrote a book on helping students get first class degrees. And I rented uh, the, the old student university conference halls and I organized a conference where I'd get like a chief inspector of police talking about memory, another friend, uh, talk about NLP, another friend called, uh, who wrote a book called Lazy Learning, Deanna Beaver, t- talking. And I would sell like £10, £15 tickets and have a little chocolate box at the back of this university refectory. It was my attempt at entrepreneurship. And then I was offered a, a role as a H- uh, in HR for a chain of hotels and that uh, was also pivotal. So it's, I don't think there was a plan as such, but there was always like uh, following the threads, what it seems to be calling me now, not necessarily a narrative that would make sense. So from there, I, you know, I, I had tuberculosis uh, when I was 23, I think, and it was drug resistant. So I had to stop working for the hotel. And I, I went back to live with my parents for about six months. 
ended up going on a journey of healing and thinking, how do I recover my health? You know, and at one point it was very bad. I thought, you know, this is over, game over. But it, it was a good experience in recognizing the fragility of you know, our plans, <laughs> given health can come at any time to anybody. But also, how do I live more on purpose? And then I, I directed a ch- work to work in a charity doing business. That was, I was sponsored on as a student. So I was sponsored on a charity called the Windsor Fellowship. So every term I went away with other young people from minority communities. And we were, you know, really taught how to speak, how to lead a team, a group, and then in my summer, I did internship in for the prison service. I worked in Felton, Young Offenders. Wow. Good, again, exposure to a different environment. And I think in the end of my 20s, I'd gone to live in Indonesia for a few months, did voluntary work there, uh, travelled uh, there and came back when I was 30, as, uh, just before 30, as a head of diversity for Santander Bank, Abbey Bank. Yeah, wow, fantastic. And, uh, so this is, uh, it wasn't a, a planned route as such, you know, things happened in my 30s, which were very different. But one of the people I interviewed when I wrote the book Made in Britain, I interviewed Angie Lamar, who's like a famous broadcaster, comedian, African, which comedian. And uh, she said to me, Stephen, when you're young and you're 14, you're told choose the right options or for GSEs or you'll be over. And choose the right GCSEs or choose the right A-levels or be over. Choose the right. And we put so much pressure in terms of defining our paths. And she said to me, Stephen, nothing, and I mean nothing needs to be done before you're 30. I said, what, Ange? She said, no, it's about how do you build up experience, experimentation, discovery, to see where is it that you want to put your energy. Now, I don't necessarily believe it's 30. You know, I think it can continue and uh, we can live our lives as in an exploratory fashion. But I, you know, that took away the pressure that we sometimes feel that we need to find the right things in our career super early. And I, I do have envy, you know, for those who find one track, they stay with it, you know, and they develop depth. And my experience in my career, I went from that retail bank to investment bank to having my own company, going in between companies. It's always been that, that interface between being in a company and then being outside of an organization, because if I'm inside too long, I become myopic. And I think this is my who I am, my identity. And if I'm outside too, too long, I lose touch with the reality of organizational life. And I can become, you know, detached from what does it mean to actually work and to and the realities and the complexities of politics and organizational uh, success. So it's for me, it's doing that dance. How do I, you know, work at the edge really and doing the edge work between the two and I, I find that's the spot for me moments of belonging and then moments of being at the edge so I can contribute but not from within the system. That's a fantastic summary of your career um, and I suppose you know, after your time in banking um, you obviously you were writing but then you, you've written you know, a number of books and I think your most recent book uh, which is going to be published uh, soon obviously congratulations uh, for that and all the details will be in the show notes uh, so your new book not being um, would you like to give an overview of that and you know why did you split it between sort of fragmentation and pointers thanks Asha when I when I wrote not knowing with uh, Deanna and she's based in Australia I remember completing it with her and going for a walk and made a joke, you know, now has to come not doing and then uh, maybe not being. And this, uh, where that came from was this idea. And I didn't have it in my mind when I first thought of the idea of not knowing. But she said to me, you know, it's how leaders know, do and be. And offering a 
countercultural way of what society privileges. How do we open up open up the possibility of the opposite? So, for example, where we tend to over privilege knowledge and expertise, how can we open up curiosity, imagination? When we tend to emphasize pushing, how can we open up working with the system? And for not being, this was perhaps the most meaningful uh, book of the trilogy for me. And this is not about not existing. You know, we think not being is not existing. But again, it's like not knowing. It's not about ignorance. Not being is about not being identified as a separate, disconnected self. And it's about developing a bigger and bolder uh, understanding of your identity. And that's supremely interconnected. So it's really an exploration about who do we think we are? How are we living in society now? So what are the narratives that tell us who we are? And we talked about some of the issues around commercialization, about the consequences of this independence or radical independence on the environment, on our planet, in terms of politics and social cultural relations. And that's where fragmentation comes in. We can see the consequences of, of uh, our lifestyles and on not just on our environment, but also on our mental health, on depression, on loneliness. And we look at that through the lens of of identity. There's a section called When Things Fall Apart. So often, even though we might have an intact understanding of who we are, uh, life throws something at us. You know, that might be illness in my case. It might be something like motherhood or being a parent. You know, suddenly your life expands, your identity changes. It might be taking on a position of leadership, for example. You're required to be something different now in, in, an, in a new role. So these are the kind of things that we explore. So, but basically, the, your old narrative no longer holds. You know, the center no longer holds, and you're called to 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 rethink on who you are, who are you being, and why we call them pointers. In the first two books, we uh, we didn't offer. I told you the negative capabilities. We offered almost like thoughts on how to undo. In this one, I call them pointers because it's not about doing, because that would be contradictory really to the book but a point is a way of glimpsing or a way of seeing something differently and at least exploring so there's a famous you know bruce lee's quote i think if you've seen the film enter the Dragon, he's with one of his students and he's pointing to the moon and you know the student is just fixated on the finger and he says don't think just feel but this idea of going beyond our attachment to concepts and the conceptual and becoming more embodied there's a famous dance. If I could say it, I wouldn't have to dance it. But there's something about living, uh, living in this uh, new identity. So what we do is we we share four pointers in how we can think about our identity differently and expand uh, who who we think we are. So that's the that's the beauty of I, I hope um, what the book does. We never and I've never given tips in any of my books because to your point, advice really works. What we do offer instead is story, because we tend to engage in the stories other people tell, particularly when they're authentic and they're vulnerable. We offer questions to live with and stimulate questions, because questions often open up something in us. It's not about having the right answer and the one-time answer, but it's more about how do we live with the questions. So you've probably heard or listened to the quote Rilke, learn to live with the questions themselves and often questions such as what's my purpose or these if we we continually ask them throughout our lives and our answers continuously change as, as we evolve and as we change as our environment changes so they're not about finding you know the answer the answer but they're about living the question 
And the third part is rather than to do things, we offer experiments to try. You know, how might you experiment with this? What might you do? And it doesn't need to be some grandiose, life-changing experiment. It could be some things that are small. So one of the concepts I like is this concept of Trojan mice, you know, rather than the Trojan horse, which is like a huge thing and have, can have consequences. Why don't you release lots of small experiments and see which ones catch and which ones have the energy? And often they're, they're able to have more success because they're not rejected by a system that might push back against something, something larger and something big. So, yeah, there's some thoughts on, on pointers. That, that's a great summary and really enjoyed uh, reading it. I, I just wanted to pick a couple of stories which I like from the book. There's a, a bodybuilder who started a business and you talk about how he learned to enjoy the journey rather than thinking so much about where he's going to get to. And I think that's very important in life. If you're actually thinking on a day-to-day basis, am I getting something out of it? Because I think sometimes so many people you know, have this grandiose uh, goal. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be ambitious, but if it's like an all or nothing, I have to be a partner in a law firm or a managing director or, or whatever it is. That's quite mm. binary in, in, in some respects. Whereas if you're saying every day I'm achieving something and that actually fuels yourself to work harder. I mean, what, what do you think about uh, that? Yeah, I think it's it's right. So he, uh, this this is Akash Bagela. He started like a, an online training fitness company. But what he discovered was, yes, people tend to go for the quick fixes or you know tend to think about the goal. But what's really needed is a structure, is systems, and is strategy, and putting into place certain things that organize your life to have for that to happen automatically. And then the results take care of themselves. So for example, in the structure, you might have, you might have in your day, you, you walk in the morning, you know, you do a short walk, uh, it accomplishes your 10,000 steps, or you drink three liters of water a day, or you would do, you prepare your meals for the week. So you don't need to be thinking about what do I eat each day and then decision fatigue, and then leads you to, to binge, for example. So he thinks about these three things and how, can you make them automatic so again you're taking away the the idea that you need to always think about um so it becomes like almost like a second nature so i liked that how he transitioned from thinking externally which is very important because it can you know it's a way way in so not to diminish it what he noticed was other aspects of people's lives were transforming they were changing their habits they were changing their energy they were changing how they valued themselves how they thought about their own time and uh, relationships and to to be much more healthy so it's a a good um good metaphor what i really loved was the quote he says you can't walk out of a forest in 12 days that took you 12 years to walk into you know often we're looking almost for the quick fix you know the instant result we live in society that does that you know most magazines have things like 10 ways to do this in 10 whatever in in a way that is almost respecting time and process doing the work and then letting the results take care but respecting the process so one of the metaphors in the book is around this cocoon idea you know about the metamorphosis of a butterfly and uh, how it creates a magical disc, almost devours itself to, but to create something new. If we're impatient, it's almost like quickly breaking open the cocoon, expecting the butterfly to be inside. And obviously we kill um, the possibility of that transformation. So it's how do we recognize and have the patience to allow something to emerge and allow transformation to happen. So in not knowing, for example, we use the metaphor of the light of the dark, 
we tend to privilege the light we tend to privilege knowing what to do you know someone's in the dark they thought you know they're 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 not known they're the ignorant but actually the dark is the place where transformation happens think about the seed in the earth think about the baby in the womb just when we think that nothing is happening in our lives that's a period where the greatest transformation might be happening so it's a reframing of our uh, our attitudes to the unknown but also reframing our attitudes to this period of darkness in our lives period of transformation and they're not necessarily easy this is uh, where we can develop a new capacity to to recognize what's happening here in, in our lives transitions take much longer than we think now there's a beautiful book I think by Bruce Feeler and he wrote a book called Life is in the Transitions and we tend to think we can make a quick transition but this is an average transitions take four to five years they often start with something called a long goodbye now it's tricky to to change something and he calls it long goodbye because it can take years you know think of like a, a job change you think about it for a long time or a relationship let's say you're going through a divorce. it's not it's not a quick process and then you have a messy middle yeah you know when you're not quite sure maybe you're going back and you know, maybe you still have to contact the ex-partner or <laughs> ex, ex-colleagues or you're still yeah. there and then only after the messy middle is a new beginning you know new beginnings but we tend to think we can drive straight from a decision to a new beginning no, I, without I, I, going through, through that process no, I, th- I think that's a great point you make, and I'm fascinated by the whole idea of time. If, if you look at things in reality, we do have, unfortunately, a finite amount of time, even though it seems endless. But it, how can you use it in the most effective manner? And I'm not saying that you should be worrying the whole time about uh, you know, every week, have I achieved the, the most that I can? But I think, you know, it, it's this paradoxical thing. You do have more time than you actually realize, um, and if maybe uh, every day you set half an hour aside or an hour, you can actually start <clears throat> you know, thinking about these big things, self-improvement, upskilling, you know, wh- whatever it is. Uh, but there's this, you know, always, always this sort of paradox, um, you know, about trying to make the, the most of your time. And, you know, especially I think when you get you know, l- later on in life, you're trying to, you know, I, I think regret is the worst thing. You know, uh, realize that, you know, if you could realize that you're living, yeah, you know, with this you know, very precious commodity, make make the most of it. And I don't think that should drive you into this state of anxiety. But I think you should appreciate what you have and how how you can make the most of it. And I I like this idea of you know memento mori, where you, know, you we realize look that death is, death will happen at, at some stage. But in a way, that should almost give us impetus to make the most of our lives. Yeah, like uh, I go back to your reflection on time, Harsha. And uh, I remember one of, I was teaching in Episcopal, and one of the professors said to me, Stephen, you squander time. And I thought, that's interesting. <laughs> time for me is like, uh, I've never had this sense of, uh, you know, we have two concepts of time. Well, there's many, but one is called Kronos and one is called Kairos. Kronos is the clock time. And uh, Kairos is when you're in the, in the moment and almost like the present moment. And I've tended to live my life not worried about Kronos and more interested in, in Kairos. What that might look to an observer is, oh, he doesn't matter. You know, he's just having coffee with friends. He's not really focused. On... But what I, what I discover, it takes away, because I've met friends who do Kronos really well. You know, they micro, they use apps, they manage their days, they do... Yeah, for me, that's not my way of living life. I, I, I prefer to live in the, in the Kairos. 
I am organized. I can meet times. I'm not like a, but at the same time, I'm not urgently defined by Kronos. And the paradox of it is that people always say to me, how do you find the time to write books and do this? Um, it's almost because I'm not thinking of time in the same way that they are. I'm always not worried about time. I don't think about making the most of my day. I don't, you know, I'm not worried about. So all I am is thinking right here, I'm, I'm present here. And then what is it that I'm, you know, working with that rather than for many years, I didn't even wear a watch. And I only wear one now because it tricks my, uh, tracks my steps. But that's the only reason. <laughs> so they only, you know, this this sense of exploring what is our relationship to time. I think it can be almost like a tyranny. You know, there's the clock or the compass type of thing. And uh, how do we, you know, how do we, uh, yes, value time as, as our most precious thing? But it's not time that we're valuing, really. It's, uh, it's this moment. And how we how are we in this moment rather than uh, judging our relationship to this concept of time? So it's it's yeah I don't know if that quite answered it, but my own relationship is recognizing when I'm in Kronos and when I'm in Kairos, and how do I live my life more from uh, the Kairos? And the experience then is not of being rushing, not of having to achieve things, but things get done and things get achieved, but they're from a they're coming from a different place. I definitely uh, agree with that way of doing things because I think sometimes if you think, oh, you have all these things that you need to do, it actually puts uh, almost a burden on you unnecessarily. And I'm just thinking back to this podcast. I started this back in January uh, without any particular grand plans or ambitions. Um, and I thought, look, if I could do a few episodes, if people like it, then, you know, I'll carry on. And now I'm, I think you're going to be, um, you know, Nine, the 19th or 20th episode um, and I've also got a YouTube channel and then out of that I'm also potentially writing a book but I never had a strategy you know right at the beginning thinking this is what I have to achieve because otherwise it would just felt like work and I'm not I'm not saying that you know, like yourself yeah I, I, I try to be on time and you know uh, and, and thanks obviously for turning up on time today there are certain things you need to do but I think when you burden yourself with all these expectations and you lose the fun. And I think that transmits itself in the work and the, the quality of what you're doing is not as good. Yeah. I, you know, I'm never dismissing if you like playing the game, you know, or if it motivates to, you know, see the likes or the views and it's equally as, you know, equally as valuable. It doesn't resonate with my way of being, but I think for there are many successful people for whom it does. So I think it's like, a, the older I get, the less, less, um certain I am of this is the way and this is not the way. This is the this works for you. And this particular thing works for me so far. And maybe maybe I can learn a lot from from you. Maybe I can become a bit more, you know, focused on views or focused on the and that's and I think that's uh it's 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 less about this is the right way and this is more okay, how do I find a way to to learn from another approach? And to be a bit more open, how do I do less of, a, I think Jonathan Hayes, less of a righteous mind and more of an open mind. Having this open mindness, I think, is a, is a, is a key. Totally. Is there anything, any pointers uh, you could suggest in terms of uh, if you're looking for a job at the moment or you're trying to progress in your career? I think uh, it comes back to the story I told about, you know, when my head charter said to me, what would you have to say? You know, there's a good book by a guy called Parker Palmer, 
and uh, he wrote a book called Let Your Life Speak, which I recommend to viewers, listeners. And this is about reflecting back and on your story and seeing that if your life could speak, what would it be saying to you? This listening to what's the messages coming out from your own life rather than from other people's autobiographies, like people idolizing them, like Steve Jobs or Garrett Welsh or whoever it is, Elon Musk now, I imagine. But what is your life trying to say to you? And reflecting back on, on that story. I think also recognizing that all of us have a sense of incompleteness and fulfillment. It's not about necessarily thinking that your next career will fill that hole. How do you learn to live with this sense of emptiness that is a part of the human condition? So it's not about necessarily glorifying that or trying to eradicate it. It's how do we make friends with that, recognizing that, yeah, work is one part of our lives. It's a huge part. It's a fulfilling part, but also this sense of what's driving you. You know, what is it truly that you're looking for in this in this career or in this move and, and thinking of your life more broadly than just your job? I think the last one is just having this like dialogue or conversations with people. Find people that see you and can really hear you uh, in your life. You know, there's a guy called Chip Conley, and he wrote a book called Wisdom at Work, and he wrote the forward for not being. He talks about being people who are a permissionary for you, meaning they sort of give you permission to experiment. They sort of give you that gentle nod, you can do it. Who is that permissionary for you that gives you that sense of confidence that you can, you know, you can go for that role, you can make a career switch you can do something new and equally can you be a permissionary for someone else can you do that for someone else that's fantastic so you know that thanks so much for that and i do like that whole idea of don't be validated by your work or these external things because they could easily be taken away from you and if you're trying to fill something you know, deeper something within you by that it's quite a, a dangerous game to play because if it gets taken away then what are you left with? Is, is that broadly correct? Yeah, I think uh, we can become over-identified. And for some people, their life is their, their work is their life, you know, particularly on vocational things like nursing, teaching, doctor. And it's not negative. But when we, you know, if we think that's only... <laughs> Yeah, and people become redundant, for example, or they they lose a job, and then it can have a terrible consequences on on self worth and on finding their own uh, own way forward after that. So um, yes, I want to really value work, and you know, this is the whole idea of work being noble professions and and our work creating you know something really positive in the world. So it never denigrate work. It's only not to only focus on on this and to recognize, and I guess this is about perspective, yeah. and uh, recognize that it's important and it's not the the only important aspect. I think the longest study on uh, on happiness by Harvard said, you know, relationships are the the key thing. How do we focus on? Yes, our relationships at work and our relationships more. Broadly, and as you said, momentum mori, uh, reflecting on our finiteness and our temporality, hopefully puts that in perspective. You know, when we're struggling with those spreadsheets, when we're thinking our our lives are over because we didn't get the promotion, yeah. will it matter in five years' time? Will it matter in ten years' time? Will it matter in fifteen years' time? Probably not. And will it matter in seventy years' time? Probably not to any of the or any of your listeners now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, we how can we live? with a bit more lightness. Is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to, to 
thank them for the part that they played in your career or your life. Um, yeah. Friends, cats, dogs, whatever. I think uh, I dedicated not being to my uncle, Tio. He was a Jesuit priest for, for many years and then he left and, and married and he was a professor of history. But I think he influenced me every time he came to visit our family. Yeah, my, mo- my mother was his sister, younger sister, and he would bring a book or he'd spend time to come to my secondary school and give a, a lecture to these, you know, secondary school students on the Counter-Reformation or He'd take me and my father to Cambridge and sit with a professor of history and would listen for hours as they talked about, you know, um, seafaring or navigation. Why he influenced me, he said something, many ways, but he said something like, uh, you know, the meaning of resurrection, you know, what does it mean really? It means you give your life away for your community and you and you live on in in others you know, through that way. So he taught me this whole, and what we end the not being book with, you know, it's the sense of giving yourself away. And ultimately, when we try to cling on to something, paradoxically, we get less of that. Yeah. And it's like uh, when, we're, when we're less self-focused and when we're more focused on, on others, on using our gifts and contribution, uh, it tends to be that that's when we're most ourselves. That's when we feel we most belong. That's when we feel, yes, we've achieved that state of not being. No, f- fantastic. Um, and I'd also like to give a quick thanks to um, our mutual friend, Christian Bush, because he kindly mm. put us in touch with each other. So it, it yeah. just shows that how these small things, um, I mean, I literally did know Christian until I was watching a YouTube lecture of his, and then I, I you know, hit him up on LinkedIn. And he was so nice, and he actually replied. Um, and then yeah. you know, we sort of uh, you know, got him on my podcast, and obviously, you know, Gabby as well. So it's funny what a small world this is, isn't it? Yeah. Christian, I, I, I must have met maybe 12 years, 13 years ago. I was always struck by his humility, you know, yes. and he's always curious as to what do you think? Less about knowing and more around listening to your story yeah. and uh, generally asking you for what is your perspective. And uh, he embodies that humbleness, I think, but also that curiosity and genuine kindness. I think, how can I help as well? Yes, acknowledge Christian in connecting us, uh, Harsha. And uh, the good work you've done with this podcast, amazing to, you know, a journey. You know, I've listened to a couple you did with Emily and and I think um, as people listen, I'm feeling that they'll get a lot more confidence and a lot more wisdom. And I'm hoping that it creates dialogues in the future, you know, where people can interact. But it's a great thing you've brought and I think on valuable uh, topics for others. So thank you for having me as a guest. No, no, my my pleasure. And and thanks once again, Stephen. And I'll make sure all your contact details are on the show notes and about your book so people can uh, get hold of you and get hold of the book. Anyway, have a a great day, Stephen. Thanks very much. Take care. care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.